Good morning. Well, brothers and sisters, friends, we have finally reached the end of the book of Nehemiah. We've been in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We actually started in mid-January, so it's been about seven months, but we've reached the end of these two Old Testament books. But unfortunately, uh, I have some bad news. These books are not like a Hollywood movie. If it was a Hollywood movie, we would build up to this grand moment and this happy ending and celebration, and this book doesn't end with a very clear resolution. In fact, we, we've had a happy event, this grand celebration that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks, starting all the way back in chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. God's people are together, they're celebrating, but then this event will turn to tragedy in this very last chapter of the book. And while that might not make for a good movie or maybe even a good story you tell someone, I think it does reflect the reality of life here on earth. And in life, there really are, is not a happy, happily ever after. In life, we, something happens, and then we go on to the next event, and nothing stays perfect or ideal all the time. We won't experience that happily ever after, that perfection, until Jesus Christ himself returns. And in the meantime, those of us who know him, we're called to continue growing and changing. Back in the 1600s, when the Protestant Reformation was going on, when there were men and women who said, we need to be more committed to what God's Word says, a a phrase that was sometimes thrown around was this Latin phrase of semper reformanda, which if you don't know Latin, like I don't, means always reforming. Always reforming. The men and women of that time looked at the church around them. They said, you know, the, the church as it's doing things now is really not doing things according to God's Word. We're doing some things wrong. We need some major changes. And so they said this, Semper Reformanda, the church always needs to be continually changing, reforming to be closer and closer to God's Word. And what's true for the church is true for each of us as well. We need to be continually changing, reforming, growing to be more like Jesus as God changes us from the inside out. If you want to know the reason for that, just think it's true in life. Everything needs to change or does change. I was listening to another pastor in an event I was at the other week, and he gave the example of an abandoned car. If somebody leaves a car in their the front of their front yard, or there's one over here on Mountain Road that's been there for like a month. My wife and I were talking about it today. But if a car is left and abandoned, it just doesn't stay the way it was. Weather, time will slowly erode and decay that vehicle. And after a few years, it won't look anything like it was before. If you want it to look the same, you need to do something to it. You need to change it. You need to shine it up, make it look nice, put polish and everything else on it to make it look good, take it to a classic car show. But if you you can't just leave it how it is. You either change it to make it better or it will decay and fall apart. And so when we're talking about change and reforming, I'm not just saying it for the sake of change. Some People, I'm not one of these, but, but some people like to just change things just to change things or to shake things up and do things differently. That's not really my personality, but for some it is. But the type of change, the reforming we're talking about is what we need to do to be more faithful to God, to be always reforming, getting closer to Him. 
And God in His grace will show us through His Word and through brothers and sisters around us, they will tell us, here are some areas in our lives that we need to change. And when we see that, we see, yes, I need to repent, turn away from my old way of doing things, and be closer to what God says and seek to grow closer to Him. And that's what we're going to encounter in our passage in Scripture today. The man we've been looking at, Nehemiah, he's going to look at God's people and say, here are some areas that we need to change. So we'll talk about that. And we'll talk about what that means for our lives today. It's a little longer chapter, so we'll read it as we go through it. So let me begin our time with prayer. God, thank you that you did not abandon us to decay and destruction, but you have worked in the lives of the people that you have saved to change us, to make us like you. Thank you for that great grace and salvation you provide through your Son. So God, as we talk about areas that need change in our life, ways that we are far from you, I pray, God, that you would convict us of our need to change and reform and that you would work that in us because we are always to be growing towards you and we cannot do it on our own. But We need a Savior. We need you. May we see him clearly. May he increase in our time together. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. One last time, in case you haven't been with us, let me remind us where we are. We're in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament. So this is thousands of years ago talking about God's people. God's people had a promised land that they lived in, but because they sinned and rejected what God said, they were removed from that land. They went into exile. But in these books, God's people are coming back to the promised land. When they get there, they rebuild their temple, And then in the book of Nehemiah, this man Nehemiah has been tasked to rebuild their capital city of Jerusalem and restore proper worship among God's people. It's not easy, though. When he gets back, there's some other people who live nearby who don't like what he's doing. There's two main guys whose names showed up a lot in the early part of Nehemiah. These guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, were their names. In chapter 2, very beginning of the book, as soon as he gets back, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, what Nehemiah wanted to do, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And they do everything in their power to stop Nehemiah from rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem so they can have influence and control. But Nehemiah and the Israelites persevere. And only halfway through Nehemiah, they finish building that wall. And then they focus on, let's rebuild the community. They read God's word together. They confess to God where they have sinned and fallen short. They make a covenant and a commitment before God about what they're going to do. They're not going to intermarry with people who do not worship God. They're going to obey God. They're not going to buy or sell things on the Sabbath day. And they're going to provide for their religious leaders so they can offer sacrifices and sing and praise God. God for them. We'll discover in our chapter today that Nehemiah had to leave for a little bit. And while he was gone, the people chose to return to their old patterns of sin. And on his return, Nehemiah discovers four areas that need change among God's people. And these are the first four blanks if you're using the outline you should have received on your way in. The first area among God's people that needs change is their sin of compromise. Most people are compromising. Compromise. Now, when we're talking about this compromise, we're talking about compromise 
with sin and sinners. I'm not talking about necessary compromise. If you are married, uh, I hope you are compromising with your spouse and that you've come to mutually agreeable solutions and one is not overriding the other. The same if you have a disagreement with any person. I hope you're able to find a compromise of something that you can work together on and not just fight all the time. But we're talking about compromise with sin, with sin. And let's read this passage. So if you're not already there, please turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're in chapter 13. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So I'm going to start by reading verses 1 through 9 in Nehemiah 13. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but they hired Balaam against them to curse them. And yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, those who were not worshiping God. There's a reason they have to do this. Verse 4 tells us. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, that enemy of Nehemiah. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, vessels, the tithes of the grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I, Nehemiah, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. I came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. This passage tells us the change the Israelites had to make. They separated from those who did not worship God. The Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy told them that certain people groups, those of the Moabites and Ammonites, were not supposed to be worshiping with God's people. I think it says till ten generations. And the reason they did that was because those people had a history of conflict with Israel and a history of idolatry, worshiping other gods. And so they separated from those who did not worship God. This wasn't a blanket command about those people groups because you might know someone very famous who was one of them. We preached a sermon series about her last year. We talked about Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. And so she was supposed to be excluded, but she chose to worship God. So that was an option these people. It's just saying that most of them did not, and those who did not, they didn't allow them to worship with them. And the reason they needed to do this is because as soon as Nehemiah left, his opponents struck back. They had some help on the inside. Apparently, a, a Jewish man named Eliashib, who was the priest, he had been put in charge of storerooms in the temple where the people put their tithes and offerings, the things that were supposed to be given to the religious leaders, to Levites, singers, musicians, those who guarded the gates, as well as the priests, where their gifts, their food was supposed to be, he cleared that out and made a room for Tobiah the Ammonite. We read that he's related 
to Eliashib, who was the high priest, probably by marriage. With less room there to store food for the Levites, some of them had to leave. We'll read about that in just a little bit, but some of them left Jerusalem because they didn't have a space for them to store their food. While instead they had this guy, who was not a follower of God, living in the temple. Why would Eliashib do this? Well, he probably valued his friend more than he valued serving God. He compromised by uniting with somebody who was against God in order to probably enrich his pocketbook, to get his value, his influence, perhaps his favor or his money. And when Nehemiah gets back, this this probably shocked him. This isn't the same to the degree, but let, let me try to paint something that would look the same. Suppose you came in this morning and you found out that I had given uh, half of the other wing of the church to a Buddhist priest. And I said, you can live there and you can have services over there. Well, I would probably not be your pastor much longer if you came in and you found out that that had happened. And you'd probably also say, Pastor John, this is a church. It isn't your building to do what you want. You can't even give somebody a place to live in here. That's not your right. Plus when Nehemiah says, he comes and says, who are you to give a room to somebody who doesn't worship God in the temple? This happened because Nehemiah had left. He had been governor for about 12 years, but then he had to go back and give a report to the king. He was gone for, we don't know exactly how long, probably at least a year, maybe two or three. And while he was gone, this priest Eliashib seems to have taken advantage of his absence. And think about how tragic this is. For the early parts of Nehemiah, he was very focused on, we're going to rebuild the wall. And I don't know if you remember, but Tobiah and these other guys kept sending him letters and say, hey, we want to come up and help. We want to join with what you're doing. And Nehemiah said, no, you don't worship God. Nehemiah kept this man out of Jerusalem. And as soon as he's gone, the priest not only invites him in, but gives him a room in God's temple to live in. In a much more serious way, it's like a parent leaving a room, leaving their kids, and coming back five minutes later. I was gone for five minutes. What did you do? And so Nehemiah is understandably very angry. He's greatly displeased. He's grieved bitterly. He has this righteous anger. This is not right what is happening. He's addressing them. There's a difference between making peace with somebody and compromising with evil. If somebody is keeping us from worshiping God, obeying what he has said, that's compromising with evil. And then Nehemiah has a, if it wasn't so serious, an almost comical reaction. He goes in there, he grabs Tobiah's stuff, and he throws it out on the street. See him tossing furniture out the window of the temple. And I know Nehemiah was really angry, but I imagine Tobiah was pretty upset too when he came home that day to find all his stuff lying in the street. But Nehemiah did this because he knew what was important. As scholar Gary Smith says, when people rejected God's instructions, Nehemiah refused to be silent. They rejected what God has said. This is a place where we're supposed to worship God, and I cannot let this stand. But notice where his anger is. He doesn't go to Tobiah and say, how dare you move into the temple? No, his anger is directed towards God's people, those who should know better, those who profess to know God. Nehemiah says, not if I can help it. This is not the way things are supposed to be. In Pastor Chuck Swindle's words, Nehemiah did that 
because he was determined he would not live with wrong in a place that was built for right. He said, I'm not going to allow wrong in God's temple. And this type of anger he has, just completely driving this person out, it reminds us of something Jesus did when Jesus was on earth. We read about this in Mark chapter 11. Jesus saw there was sin in the temple, and he entered the temple. He began to drive out those who sold those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money chargers, the seats of those who sold pigeons. People were selling things in the area that was meant for where God's people were supposed to be worshiping. This is really the only time we see Jesus angry in this type of way. It's not a very common reaction that he has. It's not something that defined him. He wasn't angry, driving people out of places all the time. But when God's people were misusing a place that was supposed to be for worshiping God, that made him angry, and he drove them out. Nehemiah had the same reaction when he saw someone who wasn't worshiping God living there. And he had them ritually cleanse the temple chambers because, again, somebody who didn't know God had lived there. This type of compromise might seem a little silly to us. You're like, well, well, I'm not going to invite somebody to live in a church or something who, who doesn't who's not worshiping God and then set up their own religion. That's silly. We're not going to do that. But there still is a temptation for us to compromise with sin because it's difficult to follow God. And just giving a little here or a little there can be very tempting for us. And instead, we must be bold in choosing God's ways over what's easy and convenient, what will make us popular, win us influence. Instead, push that away and say, no, I'm going to follow God even when it's hard. Well, this was not the only problem that Nehemiah discovered. He also found out that the Israelites were showing a large degree of selfishness. Selfishness. They weren't only uh, compromising with sin, but they were being selfish. Selfishness. Let me read verses 10 through 14. Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and the singers, those who did the work, who worked in the temple, they had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials. I said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, the oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites. And as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Because probably Tobiah was living in the space where they were supposed to be collecting these offerings, at least that's part of the reason, the Levites had not been given the food that they were supposed to have. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how the people agreed, we're going to take our first fruits, the first things we harvest, our grain, our fruit, we're going to send that to our religious leaders so that they can live and they can focus on worshiping God. And since they hadn't done that, the religious leaders had to leave Jerusalem. They had to go out into the fields to raise their own food. And so things like worship, singing, perhaps even some sacrifices had stopped. God wasn't being the worship the way he said because 
his servants were not provided for. And this is the exact opposite of what God's people had promised. They made a covenant, an agreement before God that they were going to take care of their leaders. Back in chapter 10, verse 39, they say, the people of Israel, this is the people talking, the people of Israel, the sons of Levi, we shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil into the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, and the priests who minister, the gatekeepers and singers, because we will not neglect the house of our God. And then I read verse 11 of our text. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? They did the very thing they promised before God that they would not do. How could they possibly do this? Well, not to excuse them, but to understand, let's take a moment to think about it from their perspective. Those early chapters we read, probably Nehemiah 1, maybe all the way through chapter 12, that may happened in one year. In one year, Nehemiah came, they rebuilt the walls, they reestablished how worship was going to work. Nehemiah left 12 years later, so it's been at least 12 years, and then Nehemiah was gone for a little bit after that. So it could have been maybe as much as 15 years after they made that promise. I don't know about you, but if you make a promise after 15 years, maybe the details get a little fuzzy in your brain. Maybe they looked at each other after Nehemiah left and said, you know, Nehemiah kept insisting that we bring all these things into the temple, but, you know, I'm having a rough year. I could really use keeping some of my extra crops this year. And Nehemiah's not here. What's really the big deal about doing this? They didn't think it, it was an issue, but it is an issue. As the prophet Malachi would say around the same time, he said, will man rob God? And you are robbing me. You say, how have we robbed you? God says, in your tithes, your contributions, your gifts for the leaders. So Nehemiah asked them, why is the house forsaken and neglected? He has to confront people a lot in this chapter. Tell them, why are you doing this? So he restores the leaders to their post, and Israel brings in their tithes. And Nehemiah decides this is not going to happen again. And so he learns who is reliable, faithful, and trustworthy, and who is not. And he appoints his own treasurers and supervisors. I noticed that instead of one guy, who was before, he appointed three guys with an assistant. So if one was slipping a little bit, there was others there to make sure that this kept going. He discovers who he can trust to lead the people of God, to represent him. Paul would write in the New Testament, it is required of stewards, those who are entrusted with God's resources, that they be found faithful. It's in 1 Corinthians 4 too. Nehemiah does this and then he takes a moment to pray to God. Like he's done throughout this book, he pleads his righteousness, what he is doing before the Lord. He had remained loyal to God and if God brings judgment again, he asks that what he has done will not be wiped and blotted out with those who rebelled. He probably prayed this out of desperation. We're, we don't read a lot about those who didn't like what he was doing, but there were probably people who didn't like this. I mean, imagine if you had spent 12 years, you had to give a large chunk of your money or something, maybe to a city that was over 100 miles away. You had to give that, and then you have a break for a few years. And then this guy comes back again and says, you need to start giving again. And if your mind wasn't focused on God, you'd probably be pretty upset about that. So Nehemiah was probably opposed by many 
probably said, Nehemiah, you're much too serious about following God. You're taking this far too seriously. Surely God's happy if I just give a little and not all of that, or just every so often. How you want to follow God, Nehemiah, is much too hard for us. Instead of really arguing with them, Nehemiah does what he knows is right, and then he pleads before God. He asks God to recognize what he is trying to do, and then help him, or to spare him if his work doesn't succeed. Friends, God demands our all. If we know him, he wants all of us. But often, we're distracted by our own selfish interests. Now, we've spoken before. I I spoke the other week. I, I praise the church how faithful we are at giving on a whole. But instead of thinking on a whole, make it individual. Look at yourself. Do you sacrificially give to to God, not just with your money, but with your time, with your talents, your abilities. Are you serving God with the life that he's entrusted to you? I know many may work a full job, raise kids, but there's still opportunities to serve God, even amongst our families. And to be clear, I'm, as the pastor made policy, I, I never look at the individual financial records. That's, that's, I have no interest in knowing that. But God does know what you give. And I don't know every detail of your life and how you're serving God or what you do for Him or don't do for Him throughout the week. But God does. He knows. He sees. He will reward or judge. So who are you living for? Yourself or for Him? That's the challenge Nehemiah gave to his people. But he discovers that sin, like this, rarely travels alone. And one failure or compromise often leads to another. God's people are not only compromising with sin and being selfish with what God has given them, they're also just disobeying God's commands outright. And he discovers disobedience among God's people. Disobedience. In particular, they're breaking the Sabbath day by working on the day they're supposed to be resting. Let's read about this disobedience in verses 15 through 22. Nehemiah says, In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loaves which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, they brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers, your ancestors, act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now are you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And so he acts in verse 19. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load may be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares, they lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites 
that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So here we see the community disobeying God's word about the Sabbath, Saturday, the day of rest for the Jewish people. This was a command from the Old Testament, the book of Exodus. They were instructed in the Ten Commandments to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, what you earn for yourself. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or even a sojourner, someone who's not a part of God's people, but who is within your gates. Work was not supposed to be happening among God's people, especially in their capital city, where the temple is, where they worshiped God in Jerusalem. But that is exactly what Nehemiah discovers. And the reason God gave this command was to make it kind of a safe space for God's people, a day for them to think about God and his word, to be 100% focused on who God is and on worshiping him. It was a day for the good of God's people. It wasn't meant to be a burden or an inconvenience, but a day set aside to focus on God. Doing this made them distinct and different from every other ancient nation and people group. But the Israelites don't see it that way. They see this is a day we're losing out on money. This is cutting in to our wallet. And so once again, they break their covenant agreement with God. Chapter 10 we had read was a big agreement, a promise they made before God, but they break it once again. They said, if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. But here we are, three chapters later, exactly what they're doing. These foreign nations like the Tyrians, they came and encouraged their disobedience to get their wealth from them. And so once again, Nehemiah has to reprimand. He has to confront and rebuke the leaders. Say, what are you doing? What you're doing is reflecting the lax attitude that your ancestors had. Before the exile, they were disobeying God, and that's why God removed them from the promised land. That's why he brought that disaster and calamity. God talks about this himself in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17. God says, if you do not listen to me to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter by the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. If you do not listen to me, then I will kindle a fire in its gates. It shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. It shall not be quenched. And that's what happened. God said, you're not obeying me, and the city shall be destroyed. Nehemiah is telling the people now, that's what happened then. If we do that exact same thing again, if we do not repent or change, then we'll stir up more of God's wrath against us now things are a little different for us today we don't have a particular set sabbath saturday that in terms of that earns our favor with god or that that if we don't do it god brings judgment in our lives but the principle there is that we need to set aside time for god as well if we don't set aside time to focus on god then we will be living in disobedience too god wants us to focus on him. He wants us to know him. In fact, the main scripture memory verse from Vacation Bible School this week, Jeremiah 29-13, tells us this. We just read from Jeremiah where God said he would bring judgment, but then he also says this, you will seek me and find me 
when you seek me with all of your heart. God wants to know us. He wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you, a close one. In order to have that, you need to give time to him. You don't get close to someone if you don't spend any time with them. The same is true with God. We need to remove any distractions from us, whatever it takes. Nehemiah, he said, we're going to shut the door early. And we're going to keep everybody out of the city so that we're focused on God. What does it look like to you, for you, to remove distractions, to have time where you're focused on the Lord? Maybe it means you turn off the cell phone. Maybe it means turning off the TV, shutting down the computer. Maybe it means going to a different room, a, a different place. How do you set aside time to know God and have a relationship with Him? Nehemiah had to act to enforce these reforms. The Hebrew days began at sunset, so at the moment the sun set on Friday, he closed and locked the gates and posted guards. And some tried to get around it for a week or two. Some of them even camped right outside the gates. They're like, well, I can't be in there on Saturday, but the second the doors open on Sunday, I'll be the first one to sell things. And Nehemiah warns them, a very understated warning. He says, why do you lodge outside the wall if you do so again? I will lay hands on you, arrest you, and use force. And they take the hint and back off. He also has to tell the religious leaders they need to purify themselves for that day. That's what God has said. They need to be holy and set apart for God. And that resumes again. And then at the very end in verse 22, once again, Nehemiah asks for God's compassion and mercy toward him. It seems that when Nehemiah set aside time with God, He did to call out to God and ask for God's help. And he trusted in God's unfailing love because he knew God and had a relationship with him. This brings us to the final area that needed change when Nehemiah returned. When he got back, he discovered not only had the Israelites compromised, not only had they been selfish, not only had they disobeyed, but they also had been faithless toward God. This is faithlessness faithlessness. They were not faithful to God. They were not connected in their relationship with him. They were faithless. We'll read about this in verses 23 through 29 of our text. Nehemiah says, in those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, but they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, I I cursed them, beat some of them, pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He gives them a history lesson. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was beloved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil, act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And then we have a roundup of the usual suspects. Verse 28 says, One of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, he was son-in-law to Nehemiah's other enemy, Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from it. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. 
Nehemiah now kind of boils down to the bottom. And the bottom is that they're just ignoring God's word completely. Since they're ignoring God, they're compromising with sin, they're doing whatever they want, they didn't see it was an issue to marry someone who was not worshiping God. And surprise, surprise, here they are breaking their promise they made to God again. The promise they made to God was they would not buy things on the Sabbath. They would provide for their religious leaders. And, verse 30, they said, we will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. They are breaking their promise again. And we've talked about this a lot because this is very common in these books. For example, back in Ezra chapter 10, Ezra the priest, this was years before where we are today, he stood up and said, you have broken faith, you have married foreign women, so increase the guilt of Israel. And we've tried to wrestle with what exactly is the problem here? Well, verse 24 kind of shows us that problem. The problem is half of their children could not speak Hebrew. You may think, well, big, big deal, Pastor John. Why is that an issue? Well, at this time, God's word was only written in Hebrew. The only way you could read and know God, the only way you could understand who God is and how to have a relationship was if you could read or understand his word, if you could understand Hebrew. They didn't have translations like we have now. And so if half the children couldn't read Hebrew, that means half the children didn't have a way to have a relationship with God. And if children are not raised to know and love God, then a community of faith will die. If the children aren't living for God, then age and death will destroy a community of God. That's why we value things like Vacation Bible School. I know we've been talking about it a lot, but the reason is the same reason they're talking about here. If our children do not know God and have a relationship with Him, then we will not be here very long. And that's why as a church, we need a renewed commitment to serving our children. If we're not serving, to think, how can I, I serve there? How can I support how we reach out to our kids? Nehemiah had to show God's people this time how serious this was. He calls on God's curses on them in the covenant, how God said those who do not live for him would be cursed. He brings public shaming, public punishment. Now, to be clear, I would not recommend Nehemiah's tactics here, uh, pulling out people's hair and cursing them all. all That's that's probably not the best way to go about it. But I, I would suggest we appreciate how seriously he viewed their sin and their failure before God. This is a big issue. Even if nobody else thinks it is, when God's word is being ignored by his people, we need to point it out. We should not be complacent with sin among God's people. We can say things like, well, but what's really wrong with having sex before marriage? I really want to do that. What's really wrong with looking at a little porn here or there? It makes me feel good. For them, it was, what's wrong with marrying somebody who doesn't worship God? Nehemiah knew that sexual sin against God destroys God's image of what sex and marriage is for. It's supposed to be a picture of this is what it looks like when Jesus loves his people. That is what it's for. The union between Jesus Christ and his church, his followers. The Apostle Paul will write in the book of Ephesians, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. And Paul says this mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. 
Sex and marriage are holy before God. They stand for something. They represent Him. It's not something we chase after our own desires, but we have to treat it seriously before the Lord. God's people weren't, and Nehemiah acted harshly to make them see, no, this is extremely serious. It had been a common temptation for them to ignore what God had said about this. They often married and united with those who did not worship God, and every time they did, it brought disaster on God's people. The example he gives them is King Solomon. He was the third king of the nation of Israel, technically the third king for a a significant period of time, and he was the wealthiest and the wisest king of the nation. Yet, he fell into this sin. We read about this in the book of 1 Kings. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women. And again, the issue is not that they were from another country. The issue is that they did not worship God. And we're told that Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. His wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as had been the heart of David, his father. By marrying those who were not worshiping God, Solomon was distracted. By letting his own sexual desires rule over what he knew God had said, he found himself far away from God. I'm not trying to make a slippery slope argument. I'm talking about what God's word says. If we put our own desires and preferences in front of what God says, we will find ourselves very far away from him. And Nehemiah tells them here, he says, your argument to do this, to be evil, treacherous, wicked in this way, this argument falls flat. It always leads to disaster. And as I mentioned, the reason this was probably such an issue is because we have the usual suspects involved. Eliashib, this priest, he not only let Tobiah live in the temple, but his family was married to Sanballat, another one of Nehemiah's enemies. Nehemiah gets to the temple and all of them are hanging out. He's like, what are you two doing here? I've kept you out of Jerusalem the entire time I was there. And this man, Eliashib, we're told here, he is the high priest. He's the, supposed to be the religious leader. And instead, he's leading the people into sin. He was family with Nehemiah's enemies. So Nehemiah definitely had an uphill battle. But he perseveres and he eventually removes those who pers- persisted in sin. He says, no, you cannot lead God's people in worship. And he removes them. As he says, he chased them from him. Kind of similar to what God gives us as a church, church discipline. It's not to be mean to someone saying, if somebody's persisting in sin, saying, I'm living against God, it's a way to say, then you are not representative of who God's people are supposed to be. And at the end, Nehemiah gives kind of a change of formula. Instead of praying for God to remember him, he says in verse 29, remember them, O God. Because these leaders have desecrated, they have sinned against their commitment to the Lord. They've desecrated and defiled the office of what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to stand before God, represent the people to God, and instead, they're living for themselves. Now again, anytime you start talking about what people are doing in their personal lives, you're going to run into trouble. Probably many people resented what Nehemiah was doing. He wouldn't let people do what they wanted. He got involved in their personal lives. He told them when they could run their businesses. 
And he kept talking about how they needed to worship God. He didn't avoid these problems, but he pointed the people to God's word. He acted out of his commitment to God. Pastor Chuck Swindoll again said, Nehemiah didn't pick a fight. He just dealt with sin severely. He's not going around looking for trouble. He leaves, he comes back, and he says, you're not living for God. And that idea of dealing with sin severely, we should have that same attitude. Not so much looking at other people, but particularly looking at ourselves on an individual level. Friends, God cares about what you do in private. Even the things that no one else can see, God cares. And if you know, there's this persistent sin issue that I struggle with over and over and over again. Well, on the one hand, be thankful that you are aware that I'm sinning against God in this way. That's God's grace to make you aware of that, convict you of it. But don't use that as an excuse for laziness. I know I'm sinning against God. It's a struggle. I just can't get over it. Don't stop there. We're supposed to be growing and changing. Repent. Turn away from it. Turn to God. Get help from other people. That's part of the benefit of being part of a church family. We can encourage one another. Hold one another accountable to grow in faith. Persistent sin should not characterize someone who claims to be among God's people. And if it does characterize you, that should make you extremely uncomfortable and give you desire to make severe changes to grow closer to God and get the help that you need. That kind of brings us to the end of our passage. Those are the areas that Nehemiah seated Saul. These are where change is needed. This is where change needs to happen among God's people. And we're told what he did. But what does that mean for us? So what? Those are the areas where he saw that happen. But really, what should we take home from this? What, what does the book end with? What is its message it wants us to take out the door? Well, there's two main things for us to remember. The first is we are to keep growing. We are to keep growing. We don't arrive. We're to keep growing. Let me read the very last two verses of the passage, verses 30 and 31. Nehemiah summarizes what he has done. He says, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, everything against God, and I establish the duties of the priest and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at the appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. We took a moment a little bit ago to think about how the Israelites were thinking about this, but let's think about Nehemiah. He gave up his position, his power to come to God's people, to get them committed to the Lord. He works hard for 12 years. He leaves. He comes back a little while later. And how discouraging must that have been? It probably looked to him like everything that he had worked for was undone and falling apart. He had made it his life's goal to see God's people worshiping him, to become more and more like God. And so this time he tries to make extra sure. He's checking and double checking. I talked about with the treasurers. Instead of one, there's three. He has guards closing the gates every Sabbath day. This time he wants to make sure the reforms last. But this is then where the book ends. It ends with his prayer for God's grace. He entrusts his work to God. He says, God, you need to be the one to see this and remember this. And I want to point out something very interesting. If you know Scripture and you've heard about the book of Nehemiah, if you say Nehemiah, the first thing your brain probably drums to is, oh, he's the guy who built the wall in Jerusalem. That's what he's known for. That's what this book is about. 
But remember, he finished that wall halfway through the book. And when he gets to the end of his time serving, he doesn't say, as I would say, I'd be like, God, I'm the guy who rebuilt Jerusalem. So, you know, maybe you can help me out here a little bit. But that's, that's not what he focuses on. He says, no, God, I've worked to cleanse your city, to make your people pure before you, that they are worshiping you. Remember me, O oh God, not for rebuilding a wall, but for trying to help your people to worship you. That's what he thought was most important that he did. He asked God to remember and reward him. Not an earthly reward, but an eternal reward, eternal rest with God. Nehemiah strove to be persistently faithful. He did what he needed to do, and he trusts the results to God. Nehemiah knew that God wanted his people to grow. And that's the end of Nehemiah's story, at least as far as Scripture tells us, but it's not the end of ours. Because in God's grace, he shows us where we need to change as well. We will never arrive at perfection on this side of heaven. God continues to change us. We are not finished yet. As Peter writes in 2 Peter, he says, but grow, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he turns to worship. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The desire is for God's people to grow to know him more. Do you remember that illustration we started with, thinking about a, a car that's abandoned and decaying? If we're not seeking to grow, that's what will happen. We'll decay. If we're thinking about it as a church, that's what will happen to us as a church as well. If we don't seek, how can we be closer to God? Not changing just to change, but being closer to God. Then we'll be just like a car falling apart. I read a Interesting article this week. It was from a man named Paul Helm, a Christian writer. He wrote this article on being a contemporary Christian. And although these words, I think, are true, he actually wrote this back in 1968. And I think he saw wisely the danger that believers could be in. He says, if we don't change, if we're not seeking to reform and grow closer to God, what's going to happen is whatever we might think about our life and witness, we shall, in effect, have become a middle-class Protestant cult catering for an eccentric minority. We will be engulfed and forgotten, and we will deserve to be. That's the danger of just abandoning, hoping, hoping, well, we'll just do things the same and we'll see how things go. But, he says, if we seek to reform, to change, to grow closer to God, then we will have to face our problems and challenges as we come to them. But like those who came before, reformers, Puritans, others before us, our trust will be in the Lord of history, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. If our trust is in Him, He will do His work. I know I've spoken about my thoughts on change before. I'm not the biggest fan of change. I like routines. I like doing the same thing. I eat the same breakfast almost every single day. I love my day structured the same way. But the truth is that change is a necessary part of life. And I know that the past few years here at this church and in the world have been a whirlwind, seemingly never-ending whirlwind of constant change and transition. I know it's weary. And if you're someone like me who's not the biggest fan of changing things, it, it's probably have worn you down a lot. Nevertheless, these seasons of change and reformation are necessary 
It's what God is using to make each of us into the person God wants us to be, to make us together into the people and the church God wants us to be. He's growing us into something for His glory. Now that's going to be very difficult. And so I have some bad news and good news about that growth process. The bad news is we cannot change on our own. We cannot do it. We need a Savior. We cannot change on our own. We need a Savior. We need help for this growth to happen. This growth in us. When I read this chapter, I spoke about how it's not like the end of a movie. It's not really a happy ending. If we read through the whole thing, I I felt as I was reading it this week that you can feel the frustration behind Nehemiah's words. How upset he is that he sees all these things he worked for and he has to start over again. And how desperate he is. God, I just want this to work. I just want your people to worship you. And as hard as he is trying, he's almost seemingly coming to the understanding that I can't change these people. I just can't do it on my own. And so he repeatedly says, remember me, oh God, because I can't do it. Yeah, I think he had a hint of this earlier in chapter 5. He said, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Saying, God, I tried. There's almost this sense of emptiness and brokenness and desperation. Nehemiah is realizing that our best efforts on our own do not lead to lasting change in our lives or, or our church together. We need someone else. We need a Savior. And Nehemiah was particularly upset that the priests weren't leading the way because the priests desecrated their office. They were just as sinful, if not worse, than everyone else. They were supposed to represent the people before God. Nehemiah is so upset because he knows we need a perfect priest, someone who can stand between us and God and make us right with him. Well, what's interesting about Nehemiah is we're very close to the end of the Old Testament if you're going by the history of it. In fact, the next major event to happen, as far as Scripture is concerned, will happen 400 years later when the Son of God will be born in Bethlehem. And that Son, He will be that perfect priest even when we sin and go against God. As the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. That's who Jesus is. When we sin, when we decide, you know what, I'm going to be faithless and and reject what God has said, I'm going to disobey his commands, I'm going to be selfish and take what's mine, I'm going to compromise with those who are doing wrong because it helps me when we do that. God still made the decision. I'm going to send Jesus. He is going to die for my people. He's going to provide a way for them to know God. He's going to pay for that sin. And by his death, we turn away from sin and we trust and that is what Jesus has done for me. He died and he rose again. And we too can have a relationship with God. Do you know him? Do you know him through Jesus Christ? And if you do, I just want to encourage you that while change, transition, growth may come, as Nehemiah prayed, God will remember us and he will not forsake us. So let's worship him for that.